Bibles. Um, we've been doing a lot from Capitol Hills. We've been having people teach us from the screen, which is very normal here. But today we have a really a big honor, gift and privilege uh, to have somebody come and preach to us who, in my opinion, exhibits both boldness and vulnerability, courage and humility, reality and empathy in a way that is just really unique and really impactful in the way that this man delivers the word because I know that he believes it because he's lived it. He's seen the King of Kings show up in his life in beautiful ways, even through the hard times. And so I want you guys to put your hands together and welcome with me, Pastor Brian Loritz. If you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in James chapter 4. Uh, we're going to look at verses 13 through chapter 5, verse 6. Uh, I feel like saying, Mama, I made it. I'm uh, at my favorite campus, and I don't say that. Uh, now, we'll have to edit that out if it gets dumped on. the. I don't want the other 14 kids to feel jealous or however many other kids it is. But I just love the intimacy of this room. I I just love the lingering afterwards. I just love what God is doing here. Plus, UNC, man, y'all, y'all built, y'all beat that big powerhouse this weekend, App, App State or something like that. <laughs> Anyways, uh, what a joy! I'm a Bulldogs fan, so I'm rejoicing over Alabama's loss. Uh, the evil empire took a fall. Uh, anyways, I digress. Um, but it is a joy to be here uh, with you all today. Um, l- l- let me just say this. Um, I feel like we, if you've been on a flight, you know um, that oftentimes when you fly, there will be little you know, bumpy, uh, turbulent patches in the flight, and the pilot will come on and turn on the fasten your seatbelt sign, and it's just not pleasant. Uh, we here at Summit, if you're new to us, uh, we believe in preaching verse by verse through books of the Bible, and a part of what that means is there's sometimes you see certain passages of Scripture, and as a preacher, as a teacher, like, man, yes, I cannot wait. This is going to be off the chain. And then there's other passages of Scripture that you're just like, oh, gosh, we're in for a rough one. Well, I want you to fasten your seatbelts. We're in for a rough one. It's going to be turbulent for the next several moments uh, that we have together because this is probably the most un-American text um, that there is. He is going to challenge uh, our idols of comfort, um, idols of wealth, uh, idols of riches. And, um, but we will do it in a very grace-filled and I hope very much inspiring way. One of the things I love about this campus um, is there's a bunch of college students here, uh, and then, of course, there's many of you who are not college students here. Um, and so for the college students, um, I would kill to hear a sermon like this when I was at your season of life. Uh, when I was a college student, I was Poe. Not poor, I couldn't afford the other O and the R, all right? <laughs> um, and so I, I wanted to hear, I, I needed to hear this kind of stuff before, you know, paychecks started coming in and things of that nature, because it's very foundational and I think gives us a good framework. Uh, Plenty of you, you've graduated from college and you're on the other side of it and you're going and blown in your career. So maybe, maybe part of this, uh, you'll just feel like the spirit is going to bump against you and, and challenge some specific things. What I'm not going to do 
feel like I'm disclaimering you to death. What I'm not going to do is I'm not going to get down into the weeds and we're not going to talk about how many pairs of shoes you should have or how many golf clubs or whatever it is. I'm just going to leave plenty of room for the Spirit to speak. Here we go. James chapter 4, verse 13. The words of Scripture, as we know, are inspired. The chapter and verse divisions are not. Chapter and verse divisions are, hel- are helpful, um, but this is very arrogant of me to say. I've been listening to a lot of Deion Sanders lately, but very arrogant of me to say. I actually think they missed it on the, on the chapter division here because I, I believe chapter 4, verse 13 through verse 6 of chapter 5 is one unit, one unit. So here we go. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's sort of like the dew in the morning. You walk out, you see the dew, it's wonderful, gone. He says, that's your life. Wow. Instead, you ought to say, verse 15, if the Lord wills. We will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Notice how verse 5 starts. Verse 5 starts the same way as verse 13, which makes me say it's the same unit. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat you like, uh, eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last day. My goodness. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, who, uh, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury. And, self, and in self-indulgence, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. God, would you give me grace both in what I say and in how I say what I say. I, uh, I don't ask you for a balanced sermon. I ask you for a sermon that is faithful to your word. And so, Lord God, would you take this very direct charge that James gives, and would you apply that to our lives by the power of your Spirit, and would you just show us uh, where we are out of alignment with your Word? Uh, This text has nothing to do with the amount of zeros in a person's bank account. It speaks to all of us, no matter what our socioeconomic status may be. And so, Lord God, challenge us change us. May your gospel be clear. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Recent study came out that said depression is on the rise. Depression and anxiety are actually going through the roof um, among college students at elite universities. Now this kind of trips me out because I would think depression and anxiety would be on the rise not on those who got into the elite universities but on those who didn't make it in. The studies show that, no, depression and suicide, it's on an uptick among college students in elite universities. There's a New York Times article that came out some years ago talking about this study, and they profiled a college student, a woman by the name of Catherine DeWitt. Catherine DeWitt uh, grew up uh, um, in um, 
uh, in the Bay Area, in San Mateo to be exact, and uh, her mother was an educator, and from the time she was a little girl, her parents just kind of put their cards on the table and just said, hey, uh, we, we, we really want to see you go to an elite school, and so um, they put her in the right kind of elementary schools and middle schools and, you know, high schools, and she did all the right extracurricular activities so she could pad her uh, educational resume, and she applied, and lo and behold, would you know it, she got in to an Ivy League school. Uh, Catherine moves out east, goes to the Ivy League school, and she just kind of chronicles kind of her daily existence. She gets up early in the morning. She studies really hard. Uh, she has to actually get a job, do a little work-study uh, kind of program, and she does that, and she does these classes and studies and studies and studies and is just kind of going and blowing, and then all of a sudden it happened. She failed her calculus midterm exam first time she'd ever failed anything in her life. And when she got the grade, all of a sudden she was contemplating suicide. It's interesting, she says this in the New York Times article, will you look at it with me on the screen? Catherine says, I had a picture of my future, and as that future deteriorated, I stopped imagining another future. The New York Times article would go on to say, the pain of being less than what she thought she ought to be was unbearable. The only way out, she reasoned with the twisted logic of depression, was death over one failed grade. Now, how do you go from failing a test, and I get we would all be sad, and I get sadness, but how do you go from failing a test to contemplating suicide unless the grade on the paper was more than just a grade on a piece of paper, unless it was a part of your identity? Now, this means everything in the world when we come to our text. Some of you are like, man, what, what in the world does a girl being depressed at an Ivy League school have to do with our text? And I thought James is just talking about the rich and the wealthy, and ah, he's talking about so much more. It's real easy to, on the surface of things, just go, okay, James is railing against the rich, and so, man, this is kind of my opportunity as a preacher to kind of wield my Bible as an Uzi and to just blast away on the rich and the wealthy. That's kind of become very in vogue, even in churches to do, because oftentimes we make the assumption that to be wealthy um, is at the same time to be ungodly. And I'm like, what Bible are you reading? There are plenty of wealthy people in the Bible who loved God, and when we get to heaven, if there is such a thing, we'll be seated much closer to Jesus than I ever would. Thinking about Abraham in Genesis chapter 13 says he was rich. I'm thinking about uh, Joseph, second in command of Egypt. I'm thinking of Daniel. I'm thinking of people like Lydia, even Philemon, the church meets in his house, and the Bible is just filled with wealthy people who loved God. To be, wealthy, to be wealthy does not mean that you're ungodly. The Bible doesn't condemn wealth. It, it condemns the love of wealth. And so it's just too easy and too simplistic, and dare I even say it's wrong, to simply say that James is, is dealing only with wealth. He's not dealing with people who have wealth. He's dealing with people whose wealth has them. The epicenter of our text is actually found in verse 16. If you were to ask me, Brian, what is the heartbeat of our text, in very simplistic terms, here it is. Verse 16, James says, as it is you, here's the key word, boast. In your arrogance, all such, here it is again, boasting is evil. 
the heartbeat of our text, everything hinges on our right understanding of what it means to boast. Now, it's along these lines that Tim Keller, dear lover of Jesus, pastor in New York City who has since gone on to be with the Lord, Tim Keller says, here's what boasting means. To boast means that you have something in which you say, if I only have that, I can face life. If I only have that, I can face life. In other words, uh, for the most part, boasting has to do with idolatry. And for more on this, and I, I know uh, many of you have more than enough reading stuff to do, but file it away. I just think every believer should read Tim Keller's book, Counterfeit Gods, in which he deals with the subject of idolatry. And he defines idolatry, that the idea of our that, if I can only have that, I can face life. He says an idol is anything, even a good thing, that has become an ultimate thing. For Catherine DeWitt, her, her that, her boast, was success and performance. She felt like, man, I, if, as long as I'm successful, as long as I, I can perform, as long as I have that, then I'm valuable. But the problem with that is you will inevitably fail. I don't care who you are, you're going to fail. That's why one of the most healthy things we can do is to put some gospel distance between who I am in Christ and my GPA. Who I am in Christ and my sales numbers. For other people, that is this sense of being loved and valued and, 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 and accepted by others. That's my that. As long as I can have that relationship or as long as I can have that person's approval, I can face life. But the moment you take away that relationship, the moment you take that thing away, I can't face life anymore. There's a great passage. Uh, it's in the book of Genesis. Uh, uh, Jacob and his wife Rachel, they're having problems having kids. And Rachel says to Jacob, give me kids or I will die. Wow. I think we would all say that the desire to have kids is a godly desire. But when you add the or I will die part, <laughs> now we've tapped into something a little deeper and problematic. See, in that culture for a woman, unfortunately, my sense of value and acceptance was based on a woman's ability to reproduce and have kids, especially male kids. So what is Rachel saying when she says, give me kids or I will die? She's saying, if I don't have that, I can't face life. And that's some of you. Some of you don't know how to be just by yourself. You have to go from relationship to relationship to relationship. Others of you, you are uber-sensitive. The least little critique, the, the least little word of correction, people have to tiptoe around you because what people think has unfortunately taken an elevated place in your life. It's become your boast. You're that. So you need to put some gospel distance between what other people say about you and what God says about you. Third, and I can go on forever, forever third kind of that is money. In fact, that's exactly what James is dealing with here. James is talking about the rich, not just in general, but he's talking about the rich who, who, who money has become an idol in their life. It's not just that they have it. Again, it has them. It's their that. It's my identity. It's more than just having the stuff. It's the stuff having, having me. It's interesting, in a recent study, they also talking about depression and anxiety, they said in the workforce, the 
two major industries that high, has the highest level of depression and anxiety are, um, are the finance industry and the medical industry, by the way, the two, highest pay, two, two of the highest paying industries out there. And, and they conclude in this study that, that more, more often than not, people decide to become a doctor or people decide to get into the financial industry, not out of a deep sense of purpose or call or to use the Latin vocatio from which we get the English vocation, but people choose these kind of industries, many do, not everybody, but people choose them out of a sense of money. So what happens? I choose a profession, not out of a sense of call, but out of a sense of money. I start making the money, and I learn pretty quickly. Money doesn't satisfy. Then I'm depressed. What's your that? What's that thing in your life that if you don't have that, I can't face life? Here's where we're going today. The Bible is clear. The Bible wants you to have that. In fact, it's impossible to get through life without a that. It just wants you to have the right that. So what James is going to do in our text, he's going to de deconstruct a very common that, riches. And he's going to show us, or the Bible's going to show us, where our true that should be placed. As we come now to our text, the thing I love about James is um, <laughs> James is one direct dude. He, he doesn't, you don't have to guess what he's communicating. Uh, like he doesn't communicate via innuendo. It, have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you left that conversation going, I think they were trying to correct me on something, I think, but I wasn't quite clear what they had to say. That ain't James. James doesn't tiptoe in his communication. He doesn't come through the side door. He doesn't come through the back door. He comes right through the front door. Very direct, type A kind of communicator. And our passage is as direct as it gets on, on one of the most sensitive topics you can ever talk about, money. In fact, twice, note it, verse 13 in chapter 5, verse 1, James says, come now. It's very important that you get this. Commentators tell us that this language, when James says, come now, uh, it's not kind of a warm and fuzzy invitation for you to sit down together with James over a cup of coffee and have a discussion. No, it's the opposite. Come now, commentators say, is prophetic language. It is language of judgment. If you know anything about the prophets, they weren't warm and fuzzy people. They kind of punched you in the mouth, gave you the truth, and kept it moving. And that's James. Come now, it's sort of like um, sort of like when my mother would yell, Brian Crawford Loritz. <laughs> when mama used my full government name, you knew what was going to come after that wasn't good. That's come now. It is the equivalent of James using our full government name. And what follows after it is very sobering talk. Look again with me at verses 13 to 17. He says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Remember, James is writing to uh, ethnic Jews who have recently converted to Christianity. Uh, and these um, ethnic Jews who have recently converted to Christianity, some of whom are, um, are a part of the, um, uh, of the Jewish bourgeois. In verses 13 to 17, he's talking about ethnic Jews who've, who have converted to Christianity who are sea merchants. It's very important that you understand because James is writing in the first century world. 
first century Roman world was the, was the age of discovery. The Roman Empire is constantly expanding, constantly acquiring new cities, new territories, and it was a great day to be a sea merchant because what you would do is you would hear about, oh, man, we just got this new city. Let's look at the map. Okay, man, it's wide open. Let's go there, man, and we can immediately become a citizen, and we can make a killing. We can set up our business. We can trade. We can make a profit, and some of you are going, wait a minute, why in the world is James railing against that? Ain't that just good strategic planning? It's more than just strategic planning. You have to understand Jesus was for strategic planning. In fact, Jesus himself talked about the value of strategic planning. In Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, no one sits down and builds a tower without first counting the cost. The idea here is if you're going to build something and put a budget together, that's just good strategic planning. It goes on to say that no general goes out to the battlefield without first counting up his assets. We call this strategic planning. So clearly, if Jesus was for it, James can't be against it. James is not against strategic planning. What he is against is strategic planning that leaves God out. Verse 15, look at what he says. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will, live, we will live and do this or that. His problem is not their planning. His problem is that they are planning with no thought to the sovereignty of God. James is showing us the foolishness of riches, and the foolishness of riches, when you're that, becomes the stuff of this life, you operate under the illusion of control. Now, I know I'm in Chapel Hill, and I just want to bring up something very sensitive. Um, I know it was very heart-wrenching what happened on your campus, and I'm proud of our church for the way that we handle that. Man, to be a Christian means we grieve with those who grieve as well we should. I've done a lot of funerals in my life. I've done funerals. One of the most tragic funerals I did was one of a seven-month-old baby. I've done a funeral of a 14-year-old child. When I hear these kinds of shootings and Man, it makes me mad, filled with righteous indignation. But I think, I think one of the things that we should glean from it, because Solomon actually says better to go to a house of mourning than a house of feasting. What is he saying? We learn way more from funerals than we do parties. And one of the things we should see from this tragedy that happened on UNC's campus is the brevity of life. The assumptions we make. And then something happens, and it sobers us. That's what James is saying. Your life is a mist. You don't have as much control as you think you have. I won't linger too long here. It's a little Gen X humor that won't land well in this crowd, but I'm a back to the future guy. I didn't think that would connect. Um, my, my kids loved it. I introduced it to them early on as part of their spiritual formation process in my life. <laughs> you ought to check out Back to the Future. It's a great trilogy of movies that uh, has a horrible message. You know what the message of Back to the Future is? The climax of Back to the Future, the professor tells the protagonist, Marty, in the third part, He says to him, you control your tomorrow. 
You control your future. James says, no, you don't. You know how many obituaries there are of people who had wonderful plans and are gone. God wants us to have a that. He wants us to have a boast. But our that, our boast is not in the stuff of this life. It's in him. That's why God would say to the prophet Jeremiah, look at it with me in Jeremiah 9, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Writing to the Galatians, Paul continues this. But far be it from me, Paul writes, to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see what the Bible is saying? It's impossible for you to go through life without a boast. Have a good one. And there's only one good one. It's in me. It's in the Lord. It's in Christ. Because there's coming a day when God will say, give me back my breath. You are a mist, and we shall behold him face to face. Make him your that. Make him your that. So what does this mean? I, I, I recently saw a documentary on Netflix called Take Your Pills. I don't know if you saw it. It's uh, about anxiety. And, and they're talking about the rising levels of anxiety here in our nation. Um, it's interesting. They said anxiety is the body's alarm system, alerting you that there's trouble. But in this documentary, they said the problem with our society is we are medicating the, the symptom but not dealing with the problem. Parenthesis. Take your medicine. Take your medicine. But the problem is, underneath the anxiety, anxiety is just an indicator light, oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes, us not dealing with our lack of control. So what's the cure? Jesus in Matthew 6 says three times, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious, do not be anxious, do not be anxious. And, and he threads in that whole text on not being anxious. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. He, he says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. And yet not even Solomon in all of his glory was arrayed like one of these. His whole point is, if God can take care of lesser things like birds and lilies, how much more so will he take care of you who've been made in his image? So what does this mean? When God is my that, I don't operate under the illusion of control. I go from control to submission. I live open-handedly. If I fail a test, yeah, I tried really hard, but that doesn't define me. If I lose my job, yeah, I might be rattled and sad, but that doesn't define me. My boast is in him. 
He moves now, and we've got to hurry up from the foolishness of riches and the illusion of control to now he deals with the foolishness of riches and forming an identity around the temporary. Pick me up in verse 1. Come now, again, judgment language, you rich, uh, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Here he's talking about people who have formed their identity around their riches. And here's what James is saying. The crazy maker is you're forming your identity about stuff around stuff that won't even last. You see what he's saying? Look at the words. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. You're putting your identity... And stuff that won't even last. So imagine I came to you one day and I said, I've got the mother load of, of an investment opportunity for you. If you get excited, you lean in, tell me about it. I'm like, man, this is guaranteed to increase your, your money a thousandfold. Your eyes get big. Tell me about the investment opportunity. I says, man, they're building this ship. It's well constructed. They're even saying about this ship, God can't even sink this ship. It's going to be a fast ship. It can sail across the Atlantic Ocean in record time. Uh, you talk about the accommodations, first class, unlike any you've ever seen in your life. You're like, sign me up. I'm all in. Right before you kind of cash at me the money, you say, by the way, what's the name of the ship? I said, it's called the Titanic. Of course you're not going to invest because you know that thing's going to end up in the bottom of the ocean. In the same way, why are you looking to form an identity around possessions, bank accounts, homes, cars? Why are you forming an identity about that stuff? That's the Titanic. Jesus now comes to us and says, I've got a better investment opportunity for you. In fact, when James talks about in our text, and as he ends towards the end of verse 3, you have laid up treasure in the last days, I think James is thinking of his brother, Jesus Christ. His oh, I started calling him his half-brother. You get what I'm saying. He's talking about what Jesus Christ said on the Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew 6, do not lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and thieves do not break and steal. Where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. He's saying the way that you, you relinquish control on riches, the way that you go to war with making riches your that, is you're a person of radical generosity when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. You all know this to be true. There's just no comparison on the return of investment that you get in giving to God's kingdom compared to the kingdom of this world. Don't take me to mean that you shouldn't save. Of course you should save. Of course, you know, you should think about retirement. Of course. Don't take this to mean you can't have nice things. We get that. But if you were to ask me, Brian, what's been the best use of the money that God's entrusted to you in your life? Man, I, I'd point you to a couple of churches that I've, 
that, that Corey and I have, have given significantly to help launch churches like Renewal Church in, in Chicago or Redemption Church in the heart of San Francisco. I was just there a couple of days ago. Man, I'm just seeing this thriving church where hundreds of people are coming and people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And if you were to just say, man, compare that to your closet, the, the stuff that you have, there's no comparison. I've done a lot of funerals. I've seen a lot of crazy things. I've never seen a U-Haul truck at a funeral. The Egyptians tried it foolish. Naked you were born into this world, naked you will return. When, my, when I die, my wife will shed a few tears until she starts thinking about that life insurance check that's coming and she has specific instructions on what she can and can't do with it. You cannot spend it on the next dude. I will come up out of this bad boy. <laughs> I digress. Let's finish. James moves from the illusion of control to forming an identity around it. And finally, he talks about the foolishness of riches, and that is ignoring eternal accountability. Here's James. He moves from wealthy sea merchants to now wealthy landowners. What was common in the first century world is, is the people who worked the land often didn't own the land. They were kind of the day laborers. I remember living in California for some years, and what was really popular is you'd see these day laborers. They would, they would show up, um, many of whom would even be undocumented, and, and then the contractors would show up in the pickup trucks, and the day laborers would get on the back of the truck, and at the end of the day, they, they would need that money in order to feed their families. They didn't even live paycheck to paycheck. They lived day to day. So what's going on here in this text? It's similar. The rich own the land, the laborers are working the land, and they're not paying them what's their due. Now, as we end, this is the strongest thing I will say to you. You know what James is teaching here? When you're that becomes the stuff of this life, especially riches, you will inevitably participate in injustice. Wait a minute, Brian, I'm not defrauding anybody. Yeah, I got people who come by and clean our house, but I pay them. What are you talking about? Hear the words of a very well-known theologian. His name is John Calvin. John Calvin says, God has not appointed gold for rust, nor garments for moths, but on the contrary, he has designed them as aids and helps to human life. You know what he's saying here? The primary means in which God takes care of the poor, and blesses other people is you. You are the hands and feet of Christ. What that means is God never blesses you just for you. But when God gives you the tangible blessings of life, a portion of them is meant to be passed on to others. But instead, when I close my hands, James actually says, and live in self-indulgence, I commit injustice, a passive form of injustice. What this means is 
man, this is so un-American. It requires of us to live beneath our means. The only way I'm going to be generous is I've got to have margin. I can't do the typical American thing. Get the raise, max out the budget. Get the raise, max out the budget. Get the raise. Now I've got to leave margin. So what joy is, I got a text message and a couple looking to adopt and they're raising money and the availability and the spirit says, hey, Brian, you should do something about that. I'm glad for your prayers. James 1, pure and undefiled religion is this. Generosity, again, has nothing to do with the amount of zeros in your bank account. Let's not kid ourselves. If you won't be generous with $10, you won't be generous with 10000 I think that's a word you college students need to hear. Let me just wait till I start making money, then I'll be generous. No, if you won't be generous now, let's not kid ourselves. Some years ago, I, um, one of the things that I just feel like my dad just really did right, man, is um, when I was a little boy, my dad's like, see the world with me. He'd take me, I had done 10 countries in Africa by the time I was 16. And, and dad would go, I'd go with dad and we'd share the gospel all across, all across the world. My passport was filled by the age of 16. I'll never forget, I was about 11 or 12 on one of these trips with my dad, man. And what we would always do with these trips is all this wonderful gospel ministry. And then towards the end, we'd spend a half day at the local market. And I just remember just being blown away like, wait a minute, I can like talk you down as it relates to the price. And we're in West Africa somewhere, and I'm negotiating, and I'm talking them down, and I must have been doing too good of a job because my dad comes over and interrupts the negotiations. And I'll never forget what dad says to me. He says, son, love the entrepreneurial spirit. The Lord's going to do something with that one day. But I'll never want you to forget this is how these people live. The point of that story is not to say I was committing an injustice. I don't think I was. And I don't think Dad was calling that out in me. The point of that story is every time since then that I'd go to any kind of a market or deal with any kind of a street vendor, there's Dad's voice in the back of my mind. This is how they live. The point of this message is not to say quit your country club membership. It's not to say you can't buy anything. It's not to say get rid of your house. God may call you to that. I'm not getting down into those weeds. What I am saying is dad's voice should be in the back of your mind. There should be a tension that we feel. And it's a good one. One more thing. Notice he says of the rich, he says, I want you to weep and howl. There's coming a day of judgment, and many of the rich will live with eternal regret. I think this is one of the most important things I can say to you in our celebrity-obsessed culture. Remember that when you're scrolling through Instagram. 
think James is saying don't become too enamored with these rich, wealthy people. Picture them weeping and howling on the day of judgment. Don't imitate their life. Imitate Christ. I think he gives us a hint of Christ in the last verse. And he says that the righteous one did not resist you. It's Jesus. Jesus was under no illusion of riches. He saw you and I. You and I have the worst poverty one could ever have. Not financial, spiritual and moral poverty. That leads us to an eternity separated from God. We had no hope. We could not pay off our debt. But the Bible says of Jesus Christ that though he were rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, he was not operating under the illusion of control. In the worst of circumstances, you talk about a situation that would induce anxiety as he's looking at the cross. In the Garden of Gethsemane, hear the submission, nevertheless, not my will. Your will be done. And on the cross, Jesus Christ, hear the submission. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus Christ did not form an identity around the stuff of this life. He would say to his disciples that my food is to do the will of him who sent me. I'm, I'm, I'm boasting in a greater that. This is what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. That's why, friends, if you're here and you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, I just want you to know something. It's something that even secular people know by experience. This life will never scratch you where your soul itches because your soul is eternal and it can't be satisfied by the temporal. The gospel brings satisfaction because it's not rooted in this life. It's rooted in the life to come. So, Father, we thank you. A bumpy ride for sure. Turbulent sermon. James is nudging against how we've been culturally formed and the messages of this culture that bombard us daily, TV, media, social media, that beckon us to form our identity in the stuff of this life. Father, we declare right now, we we put our boast in you, that you are our that. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.